Hey, everybody, it's Joe Chickarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 69. Today's guest is Bill Murphy. Bill Murphy is the author of the book, Thriving in the Storm. Bill and I have what may be the most open and honest discussion about mental health, PTSD, and childhood abuse of all the episodes I've recorded of the podcast. Bill tells the story how he was physically and verbally knocked down growing up by his father, his battle with depression and anxiety, how he had to train himself to get out of the victim mentality, the power that gratitude brought to his life, and the work that he's brought to the Make-A-Wish Foundation and the money he's raised. Bill has an unbelievable story of grit, tenacity, courage, and endurance. I hope you enjoy. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Bill Murphy, author of the book, Thriving in the Storm. And remember, life is built, not born. Bill Murphy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. I'm looking forward to it. It's an honor to have you on. Bill, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I've been in sales, mortgage originations with Gurry Mortgage for 25 years. Certainly seen some interesting times in the housing market, financial crisis. Made it through, doing well there. I live in Central Mass, 40 miles west of Boston, and it's Worcester. And if you look at it on paper, a lot of people say Worcester. I know you're from Philly. I listen to a lot of your shows. And like you, our values are very important to us and how we grew up. I appreciate you saying that. And what I'd like to do is... One, definitely cover your amazing success in business, but you undersold yourself a little bit in the opening, man. Your book, <laughs> Thriving in the Storm, the book that you authored, just fantastic. I'd like to get into the book, what you write about, how you were verbally and physically knocked down growing up, how you overcame PTSD, how you run the Boston Marathon one time on crutches. You got your black belt in Krav Naga, your charity work where you've raised over a half a million dollars for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And uh, that, that amazing story, how you went to counseling with your wife and they basically checked you right into the psychology counseling services immediately when you told them your story about all the stuff you were sweeping under the rug. If that's all right with you, we can travel down that path. Yes, sir. We let's can do go. that. But before we do, let's start back all the way from the beginning. I find 10 to 12 years old, like a very formative time in p- kids' lives. What was yeah. it like, say, around the dinner table in the home front, 10 to 12 years old? Who was there? What's going on? Could you describe the scene? Absolutely. My mom and dad were there. Dinner had to be on the table at 5 o'clock or 5.30, depending on my father's work schedule. It was demanded and expected. It was, we all had to sit down at the dinner table if we didn't have, if we weren't having sports or we weren't out at that time, but we would all have to be at the dinner table and eat together. I had to finish our food no matter how gross it was. (laughs) And my dog was, she was a big fat golden retriever. She used to come right underneath the table next to me and she got a lot of those dishes, but it was, it was pretty tension filled. And it was more celebratory when my dad wasn't there because he just brought so much 
to the scene. So it was it was pretty rough. It was you live by the cliche, children should be seen and not heard. You live under my roof. These are my rules. So it wasn't it wasn't fun. That was the dinner table, but I tried to be away from that dinner table as much as I possibly could. That's why I really was involved in heavily involved in sports as much as I could be, football, baseball, uh, hockey, whatever I could get out and do. You mentioned it was tension, Phil. Tell us about some of the tension and what caused some of that tension. It, it, the tension was I'm the boss. It was like, I'm the boss. And it was more of a, not a family. It was more of a dictatorship. And it was, if things needed to be done, it was almost like, if things need to be done around the house, it weren't chores. It was like, hey, you're going to get punished because things need to get done around the house. So it was an excuse that everything had a condition on it. There was no con- unconditional. My mom, on the other hand, things were very unconditional, just incredible unconditional love. My dad, just everything had a condition on it. So that was really tough to uh, grow up with. Sister was also, she was a year younger than me. She was also at that dinner table. And then we had a young, my youngest sister's 11 years younger than me. So when you said 10 or 12, maybe the baby was at the table, maybe not, depending on if it was 10 or 12. But. What would happen? Say either you weren't at the dinner table at that exact time or dinner was late, or maybe there was a chore that wasn't done. What What would happen? Oh, man. Nothing was ever good enough, no matter how pristine the chores were or came out or if there was a blade of grass out of place or the hedges weren't trimmed to to the satisfaction, it was uh, it was hell to pay. And usually that was a beat down or some ridicule or belittlement or the famous or infamous poke in the chest, just being poked. It was really shaming. And that's what I that's what I grew up with. That's why I usually try to stay, go to my friends' dinner tables as much as I possibly could. The neighborhood. It was a it was a mixed low to middle class, but then there was also some some of my friends that did have money. They went to the they went to the uh, the private schools. I went to public schools growing up, and I used to try to go get to my friends. And I just I I grew up thinking this was normal. I just loved my friends' parents because they were so warm and loving. I just said, you know what, this is normal. And I think some of the things that have led to some success in life here was that I was never jealous of them. I just thought it was the hand I was dealt. So this hand that I was dealt is this is what we got to do. We got to take care of business this way. As much as I loved my, all my friends, dads coached me in football, baseball. So I learned a lot from them. My father really was absent at the games and practices and things of that nature. So I, le- I learned a lot of lessons from them, and I just appreciated being around the other families in the neighborhood and my friends' families. Yeah. But I didn't do the what, what was me. I want to get to that mindset in a second, that not only survive, but thrive mindset. But where do you think, just not to speak for your father, but where do you think that came from, that authoritative dictator leadership, never happy, always pointing in the chest, and the kids are here to serve, not talk? I've seen parents parent that way in the past and it's never a good idea and long term it's never a great outcome but where did just real quick your dad's story what was his story where he was like that yeah it's very strange i get asked that all the time now that this is coming out this is relatively new i've never i've always kept this close and tight and very private so i'm playing the vulnerable role and we'll talk a little bit more about that going down to a pcs i'm playing that role because i think it's important there's a lot of men that's that keep things in. And I know I have some friends from the Philly area and I know you guys are tough on the street too. And just, you're going to be tough. Men don't cry. Boys don't cry. There's that kind of, there's that kind of mentality. And 
my dad, I think, resented the fact that he was 19 when he and my mom had me. And I think that he couldn't be with his boys and friends and do the things that 19-year-olds do. And I think it was just huge resentment on his part to have a family so young. And my, the interesting piece here is my father's father, my grandfather, was like my best friend. So he used to say how bad he had it, but I never saw that from my grandfather. And he really was a saving grace on so many levels. How about looking back at that time frame, like before you left for college, what's like the most powerful memory of your childhood? You think a moment like this moment defines that era. Can you think of something? Yeah, absolutely. That It was around 10 or 11, 12, maybe. And I used to, I got to the point where I used to tell my father if he kept kicking my butt that I'm going to, I'm going to beat him down one day because I'm sick of it. And so I got, I was very confrontational with him, even though I knew I was, the beat down was coming no matter what, or the poke or the headlock. Or, and so I said, why do you want to make it so miserable for us, my sister and I, especially me? And he said, why should you have it better than I did? And that was the most that right then, I think I gained 20 years of wisdom because I said, and I said it right to his face. I said, dad, when I have kids and I'm a father, they're going to have it way better than I am because that's all I want to do for them is give them a better life. And so I believe your whys, our purpose can change. But from that young age, I always said that, hey, I'm not... Hey, I learn every day with my three kids, right? My son's 22 and I have two teenage daughters, 18 and 16 and or 19 to my daughter's had a birthday. I learn every day on how to be a better parent, but I try to learn. My my daughter just, we just had homecoming this weekend. She told me, you better take down those Facebook and Instagram posts or I'm not talking to you again or I'm not hanging out with you again. So I have to make a decision. What do I want to do here? So like I'm learning every day. I don't poke that bear, my daughter, because she'll kill me. But it's fun. And I'll have to probably buy her an iPhone 14 or something to make up for it. But it's so the parenting thing is you never, ever, ever can stop learning and growing as a parent in anything, right? You have to take a lesson from every single day of your life. And there are lessons. Just a couple things there. One, you said a quote, why should you have it better than I did? Oh my gosh. If there was like a mic drop moment, like in not a positive, but a negative one, when yeah. like that mindset, just hearing the stories, it looks like, it looks like your dad perceived the family of getting in his way of having a great life or stopping his from 19, whatever. There was some sort of burden. Yeah. yeah Cause like your grandfather was a stand up dude and a great dude. When you hear, why should I have it better than I did? I mean, that's so profound. If you could remember, what went through your mind then? That is so deep and powerful. So always remember where you were when a good or bad impactful event happens in your life. We all know where we were in 9-11. We all know, we all know where we are in certain things in our life. And I remember I was in his, I was in the basement and he was in his workshop and he probably had me doing something to help him unnecessarily, conditionally. And that's when that conversation came up. But I knew exactly where I was when I was there. And it was, uh, that was the scene. That would be a moment you remember the rest of your life. And that is past, especially coming from your dad. I could see like a fourth grade teacher telling that to you, having a bad day or like someone that you have a marginal relationship with, but that comes from Isn't it so backwards? It's very backwards. Because if you look, if you look at just a general definition of leadership is there's a million definitions that are all right in their own way, but leaders make things better for the group. The group is better because the leader's there. And you could say, wow, we succeeded. We did the work, but man, that person, that guy or girl, 
what a great vision or way they guided us and they nudged us and they helped us. And wow, they made things better because they're there. And could you imagine any leader saying, wow, I want you guys to fail because I don't want this team to be better than the team I was on 20 years ago. That is crazy. Oh my gosh. Man, and that just at some so point, he was a leader. So my dad, and listen, I, he and I are okay. We're just, he just still hasn't gotten it yet. And again, he's fairly, I mean, he's 70 now, but he just hasn't gotten it and he probably won't, but he was a leader. He was a, a captain on his fire department. Now that's a brotherhood, right? You're a brotherhood. And just like any first responder, it's your brotherhood, police and fire, the firemen. That's just, a lot of my friends are, I grew up with, a, were on the fire department with my dad. But when he retired and he retired early, he retired young with a back injury. And when he retired, his, the firemen love having retirement parties. Like they just throw these bashes and just because like they're just celebrating the leadership uh, or they're just celebrating the brotherhood that they had with that particular fireman. And so he, my dad used to go to all these retirement parties. I remember growing up. And when he retired, they didn't throw a party for him. And it really bothered him. And I remember my mom and him got divorced after 33 years, but I remember him very upset saying to my mother, like, why didn't they have a party? And she basically said, because you were such a jerk to everybody. And to this day, when I meet some of his buddies or folk, not buddies, some of the some of his firemen that were on with him or knew of him, they said to me, you never, ever want to be on his bad side. You never want it because so I'm like, that's how I grew up. Like conditional. It was all conditioned. Yeah. So you don't so I'm like, that's not leadership. So I learned so many things not to do because of what was happening. And I learned that's not what you do. That's not how a leader works. Like when my staff come to me, I never say no to vacation time or time a day off. I won't say no. You need a time off. You need mental health. You need a break. Just take the time off. I will not say no. It's very rare in in 25 years I've ever said no to any of my employees that wanted some time off. And I I think about that because that goes a long way. Now, am I the perfect boss? They could give you a they could give you a whole write up on the things I do wrong and my quirks, but I will never deny anyone time off. And because I think it's so important. And there's the other thing is we try never to call anybody or get in touch with anybody on their day off. Because that's their time. Yeah. Now we're in sales, and I know I know you're in sales, Joe. When sales issues happen, you want to go to that salesperson and get in touch with them right away. Yep. We try our best never to get in touch with anybody on their day off because that just that what does that do to their mind? Yeah, it scatters their mind. It gets them they're in work mode again. They're not refreshing. They're not recharging. They're not doing the things that they need to do to get some space. I think that is such a long-term strategy for creating an amazing culture and loyalty because you don't want satisfaction, you want loyalty. A couple episodes ago, I had uh, sales author Jeffrey Gittimer, best-selling sales author, great dude, funny as heck. He has a saying, he's satisfaction is worthless, loyalty is priceless. And his example is, do you want your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend to be satisfied or do you want them to be loyal? Yeah. Like it's like you want loyalty and loyalty comes through like seeing them as a person. And like you said, you don't contact them on a day off. Like the sales team I run here in Philly, I have a personal rule. We're in sales and we take our job seriously. But after 6 p.m., 
I have never sent an email after 6 p.m. Like I have never, I'm not flooding anyone's inbox after 6, after 6 p.m. It waits. If I'm like, well, I got to get the work done. I got to travel the next day. There's a way in Outlook. It's three clicks where you send it 8.30 the next morning. The emails come between eight and six. There's nothing at night, two o'clock in the morning. They're not getting a ding just because I'm up and can't sleep. And let me catch ahead of work. Sunday afternoons, they don't flood. I don't flood their mailbox just like you did. And I think that creates a loyalty of I respect your free time. When we're going to work, we're going to work well. We're going to work. We're, we're going to go at it. But when we're home, you know what I mean? It's not, you're not everywhere. Like you said, when you're, it messes with your head when like you're sitting. I had bosses way back in the day where I'm pushing my kid in a swing on Sunday afternoon. And they're like, they're catching up on email and it's like email. My phone's going ding. And I'm starting to get this anxiety. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have less work to do, but it's two o'clock on Sunday afternoon. I have no work to do really. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So Joe, I, I, so you, you're giving me a great takeaway because I send emails at all hours of the day, but what I say, and maybe I need to be better about sending them after six, but what I say is you don't have to respond unless I need you to respond. Just flag it. So when you turn on your computer on Monday morning, it's just flagged. But I, maybe I need to be a little better about that too. It's a good takeaway. This whole leadership thing for everybody, it's such a work in progress. You mentioned that your dad was not open to the lessons. Like he was not opening the change. And just right there, you're like, wow, there's a little micro idea I might be able to take and tweak and make up my own. And that's what a leader does, man. You steal ideas. You're open. Like you said, you do some things you think you do pretty well. There's other things. If they wrote a story on you, like all your quirks and things you did wrong, and we all got it. I can't even imagine what my team would say about me, about the quirks and the, the stuff you got wrong. You know what I mean? And you're human, absolutely human. But you have to be open to the lesson and know that you're not the finished product. You have an idea where you want to take the team and your development, and you're just slowly trying to get like a micro step better each day, right? Oh, and it's sure. not my way or the highway. It's just, wow, tell me what I don't know. Anyway, it's, I just love the idea that you have of you're constantly trying to find a little bit better way to move the ball forward. And that goes with parenting and that goes with business and life, right? Absolutely. And also too, you mentioned about your dad, the last thing on your dad, he led like in the fire company, right? And they didn't throw the party for him. How, even if they did throw a party for him, right? How much easier, how many people do you know that absolutely kill it in the workplace, guys or girls? But their home life is amazing. I know people that just crush it in the world, crush it like so much money they don't know what to do with. And at home, it's an it's a train accident at home. Like it's just the relationship with the spouse is bad. The relationship with the kids is not great. But man, they crush it at work, and boy, they have a nice car. How many people do you know are like that? There's quite a few. There's quite a few. Yeah, and that's my story too. I was such a workaholic. I just, I always wanted to do, and we go back to this. I always wanted to be opposite of my father, but what I didn't realize I was doing is I would bring tension home into the house. So I needed with my kids and in my relationship. So I misstep myself at, in home. So I needed to get better there. And I don't bring tension. It's been a few years. I don't bring tension home anymore. Nope. No way. I will not. I leave it out, out the door. It's uh, there's, if something's going wrong, my kids aren't going to know about it at work. It's just not, I'm not going to bring that with me. I'm not going to get upset. And that was a problem for me. I want to go deep in that. You bring up a point where I, I stole this from, are you familiar with Ryan Holiday? Yeah. yeah. 
great author. He has all these amazing p- guests on his podcast. And he had a guest on, I forget the leadership expert's name. He basically, and, and the quote from the leadership expert was, leaders, great leaders make very fast transitions. And the transition could be everything from transitioning to a new team, or he said, even the micro transition from the workplace to home and home from the workplace. So if you're having a great, mm-hmm. if you're having a problem at home, you don't bring that into the office. And if you're having a, a horrible day at work, but like you have a bunch of cute little kids at home, you don't bring that home. And you have to be able to transition and leave the residue of work in home, the bad stuff there. Just bring your and bring your best self to each place, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to. Yeah. So when did you mention that you did not do a good job of that in the past? How did you first notice it? What, what, how did that look? What did that look like? And how did you know it was time to make a change? Man, so we we talked earlier about like men, and especially where I know Philly and Boston is very similar with values. And we grew up, you don't cry, you don't, you handle it like a man. Those cliches and how we had to live is how I grew up. So I keep everything inside. And it was, you know what, I'm not down, I'm just have anxiety. I'm not depressed, I'm anxious. And I would tell myself that for years, years and years, all through my adult life. So there was this book, Terry Rill wrote this book, and this is how this goes into the council, right? And so I always believe in, I have a master's degree in counseling psych. So I believe in counseling. I believe in psychology. I believe in really taking care of mental health, taking care of your mental health, right? But yet I wasn't cleaning up my own backyard with that stuff because I was in denial. So because of how I grew up, I think I kept so much stuff in that I just, I lived with anger and angst and I would snap and I'd be snappy and I would have a sharp tongue and I would say things that I would in the heat of the moment. And when I was, when I train, when I'm running or I do, do some Ironmans and marathons and things, when I train, I go for, when I go for my long runs, I listen, I listen to a good book. I listen to a podcast. I listen to your podcast all this week, weekend. I listen to a bunch of great podcasts. Oh, thank and you. I appreciate I, that. Yeah, of course, that you get, you have some good shows. And I was listening to this book. It was I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terry Real. And it was written probably 30 years ago. And it was about male depression before male depression was even a thing. And I listened to this book. I hang on every single word. And I'm like, oh, man, I have been depressed my whole life. And I just swept it under a rug. rug. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I we were going through, I was going through some relationship counseling and with Terry and Terry told Terry, this is what I said to Terry. I said, Terry, he was beat down and ridiculed by his dad growing up too. So he, he had a similar lifestyle. And I said, Terry, your book reminded me so much of my life growing up. You were me and your dad was my dad, but I had it way worse than you. He said, and can I, if I could be candid, Joe, yeah. he said, you're fucked. He said, you need to get down to PCS down in Arizona and check yourself into this intensive psychological. And what is PCS is for the listeners? PCS? Psychological Counseling Services. Sorry. Okay. Psychological Counseling Services. And it's an intensive down in Arizona in Scottsdale. And I'm like, I'm not going down there. Okay, maybe I have a little depression. He's no, you really need to go down there. So my wife says, you need to go. And this is when I was bringing tension home all the time. And it was, it was always tough to be around. And so I went and I said I was going for her, but I really needed to go for myself. And while I was down there, 
she had been sick for two years, like really sick in and out of hospitals for 90 days and lots of surgeries. I think she had five or six surgeries. Wow. And I wrote my, my trauma was watching her go through that and taking care of her and not knowing if she's going to live or die. And they just kept on peeling it back. I was like, okay, that's a trauma. That was horrific what you went through. But your childhood, let's get into that. And they kept wanting to get in my childhood. I was like, I kept saying, my childhood was normal. My childhood was normal. I had a normal childhood. Yeah, there's some beatdowns. Yeah, there were some things that happened. There was some ridicule. There was a lot of shaming. But that was normal, right? And so when I realized it wasn't normal is when I heard them. Now, you go into a room with 20 of the doctors and therapists and counselors and everything. You go in a room and they talk about you while you're there. And two of my two of the therapists that I was really working with, Dr. Green and the other therapist, they're telling the story about my childhood. And so with some of the incidents and they're telling the story and they're crying in the meeting that I'm in as if I'm not there. They're like crying about the story. So that's the stories that I told them was when I called my mother while I was at PCS. They said, you need to un- unfold some of your childhood because there's some really, some really rough stuff. Call my mom. So mom, I mean, do this to you. And she, I said, did stuff happen? I can only remember till I was five. And they wanted to get earlier than that. I said, did stuff happen? And she said, ah, daddy was just a jerk to you. He was, I needed to protect you. So she starts crying. She calls me back five minutes later. I couldn't even get a word out. She couldn't get a word out in hysteria. And she's, yes, I remember when you were a baby and you wouldn't stop crying. He would pull you out of the crib and put you under the sink and just and pour water on you until you would stop crying. I was like, that's freaking waterboarding. You can't do that to you can't do that to the Taliban. Are you kidding me? And so that was one thing. And then my sister, I called, and there's a few other stories, but Go ahead, my, yeah. my sister, I called my sister and I said, Cal, and I was mean to my sister because my dad used to pit us against each other. And there was one time I did something, I took her ball or whatever, and he held me down and had her punch me in the face until it was hard enough for his liking. So he's holding me down and she's tooling me. And I was just like, and so now she felt bad while she's hitting me, but he's telling her to hit her out. So not, this is not trauma for me. It's for her. I was like, oh man, I was feeling bad for her. It hit me. I was like, Kel, just hit me harder because I didn't want her to get in trouble. So then she, she said, but the one story that I remember is when he put you through the wall and I thought you were dead because you dropped like a rag doll when you went through the wall. And I said, I don't remember going through the wall. I don't remember repairing the wall the next day, plastering it. So like these stories, I didn't know any of these stories. I remember plastering the wall because I, I thought maybe he bumped me up against it. But these stories I told at PCS. And then, so as I'm going through, I'm finishing up the week and then they diagnosed me with PTSD. So this is, this was my issue growing up is I always felt less than because I was made to feel less than. I said to the doctor, the doctor that said, where we have you as PTSD. I said, I'm not worthy of that. That's a warrior's, that's a warrior's diagnosis. Like those are soldiers on the battlefield that have PTSD. So I was saying that I wasn't even deserving. Here I am in my late forties. I'm saying I'm not even deserving of a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress. So I had to finish a lot of stuff, man. I had to get in touch with my younger self and care for that kid. When I told those stories, I didn't have empathy for myself as the kid going through it. But Joe, if you told me that 
your kids went through that trauma, I'd be almost in tears saying, oh man, I'm so sorry that your kids had to go through that. When I told the story about me going through that trauma, I didn't feel bad. So then I was like, now they're like, okay, dude, you need to love yourself and love your love the younger you. And I'm like, there's a lot of work that we need to do here. So I went back a few times to, and I really do believe in constantly having, I personally always would have a therapist because it's, it's just good. Even when I'm in a great place, like I've never been in a better place in my life right now, but I still believe in therapists. I believe in coaching, get coached in everything you do, yeah. get coached in sales, get coached in life, get coached in, in whatever endeavor you want to take on, just get coached. So I believe in therapy and I believe in coaching because they can help bring, guide you to places that you don't want to go and you need to go. And so that's how all this unfolded. So to get back to your original point, yeah, we all know super successful people that bring stuff home and their home life's a wreck. And that was me. And I didn't know why I fixed all that or I'm continuing to fix all that. So I don't really, I really get hotheaded. I really get, I will rarely get angry about things now. I find gratitude in everything. And when I was telling the story about my dad, all of these things were the silver linings. So there's no ill will. It's just making peace with your past. So I make peace with all those things that that happened, but it, it gave me grit. When I was the first round, when I was in PCS, they said, there's this test. It's called the ACE test and it has to do with your childhood. And so I, I complete this test and it has to do with abuse and abuse physical, sexual, and there was none of that, but there was a lot of physical, verbal abuse. There's a lot of abuse. The doctor who was actually a triathlete, he took me under his wing. The doctor said to me, he said, you should be dead or in jail based on your statistics of your test. And he said, but you put it into your work. And I was like, that saved me. So it was the lesser of the evils that I could have gone into. But being in counseling myself, I see these people that have those ACE tests they're drug addicts, they're, you know, they're murderers, they're gangbangers, they're in jail, they're dead. They're like, I've seen all that. I worked in lockup for five years when I was going for my master's. So I knew the, what that can do, but I actually took it a different way and said, you know what, I'm going to succeed in spite of what I'm being made to feel less than. So I took that down a different path. And got lucky. And got lucky. We all get lucky to some degree. But just to, first off, thank you for sharing that. Just to unpack some of that. Getting back to the wall, getting thrown through the wall. How old were you to, to remember that when you were thrown through the wall? I don't, so I don't remember that, but I remember repairing it. So I must have been seven or eight. Okay. So seven or eight. So basically, is that the, uh, an effect of PTSD where you don't remember the trauma where you're saying when you got thrown through a wall, you don't remember, but you remember fixing it. Yeah, it could be. It, yeah. it could be. Yeah, very well. It could be part of that. A lot of people don't remember that. I know of loved ones that remember that they had sexual abuse when they were teenagers, but it was when they were little kids. Yeah, I've seen that. And that's definitely, that's definitely post-traumatic stress. And then you mentioned getting back to a positive connotation. You talk about everyone needs a coach and therapy helps. Why do you think, just going back a little bit, why do you think there's such, especially for men, such a negative connotation about, wow, I'm in therapy, where, where in reality, you should congratulate the person and say, wow, you got balls, dude. Great job. Like a quick story. I have a friend who went through a divorce and a few years back, and they basically said, 
I'm like, hey, how's it going, man? Just checking in. And he's, listen, we're in therapy. And I go, dude, what you learn through all this? Like this crazy mess that you're through, you're going through. And he's, if my marriage was awesome or my marriage is horrible, therapy is amazing. And even if you have the best marriage, you should be going through therapy. That was one of his takeaways from the process that when the marriage was good, if they went through therapy, they probably would never have to go through it when they were bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that therapy, why do you think there's such a negative connotation that, wow, he's in therapy? It's stereotype, right? It's yeah. a stereotype. We talk about it like men don't cry. Like that, that was a stereotype that, that I grew up with. And I know some tough Philly people like you, Joe, I'm sure you had at least seen it. I don't, I don't know how you grew up, but it's just one of those things. Like you don't have to talk about it, hold it in. Brene Brown had that great speech and I was forced to listen to it a few years ago on vulnerability. Yeah. Awesome. And I think she was, she pioneered a new revolution on how men should be now like the good old boys and all that tough talk and tough stuff yeah it's great growing up and you laugh about it but man that sticks your energy man you keep all that stuff inside and you have no place to go you're gonna boil over and it's gonna blow and that's how you get sick and that's how you get diseased and just keeping all that negative chronic stress inside you if you don't let it go so that I think therapy serves a purpose where you can let that stuff go and get it out in a clean way mm. and don't need your don't need your vices. People have their vices to get things out and deal with stuff. They self-medicate inappropriately, whether it's drugs or alcohol. And I don't think, I don't think you don't need to do that. You can yeah. get things out yeah. by talking about it. And you got to talk to the right person too. You might, oh, sure. Oh you my know, God. There's some sure. bad therapists, just like anything else. And there's some bad therapists. And just knowing that line of work, I could, I knew who I could fool and who I couldn't fool. So I just try to surround myself with some great people in that area. That's great. That took such courage. You mentioned that everyone's a work in progress. I think everyone could, everyone needs coaching. And I think probably everyone could use a therapist, but you go, cause everyone's got their quirks and things that they're good at and things they're working on. But like you, you mentioned, I like say, just talk about guys, like the man, I think that like the Philly dudes, the Boston dudes, the tough guys, the martial artists like us and working, we're trying to be perception of strength, right? Like one, every person that I've met in my life and you're like, wow, he should talk to somebody. And they don't. And you go, how come he doesn't go get help? Or why does he talk to somebody? Or they go, oh, he's too proud. Oh, he's not going to do that. They keep that in. 20 years down the road, they self-medicate. It could be drugs, right? Sometimes it's alcohol. Sometimes it's food. Like they just eat oh, yes. horrendously. Or it's gambling. They do something to quiet the mind. They have to have three glasses of wine every night and watch Netflix for four hours you know, to calm their mind. And instead of talking to someone and getting it out and, and dropping their ego and say, hey, let's talk about this. Let me get the help that I need. They self-medicate and down the road, they are so far worse off than they would be if they just said, you know what, you, you admit that you have a problem. And like, you drop your ego and you're like, here, please help me. And that's such a game changer. And dude, congrats and for having the awareness. <laughs> but then you have awareness is one thing, but to have the courage and we'll call it balls to go in and actually make a change is do kudos, man. That is very impressive. Yeah. So the key there is to be coachable, be coachable in anything that you partake in. You're a martial artist. If we weren't coachable and we thought we knew it all because we had a couple of street fights under our belt. I mean, it doesn't work that way. You get your ass kicked. Um, oh my God. So you got to go in humility, right? You have to, you have to humble yourself. Oh and my gosh. It's, it's so you have like, to have a humble spirit, humble spirit. 
We try like in the morning, we try a couple times a week. We have a thing called Sunrise Jiu-Jitsu, Sunrise BJJ. And we have a great group that gets together at like quarter six a.m. and we train to seven, like three times a week. And there are such they're all regular guys, they're lawyers, they're CPAs, they're doctors, and they're such killers on the mat. Like you would see them in line at the mall, you see them at line at the restaurant, and you're like, oh, like you don't wouldn't think any of them. And you get on the ground and they're just like really good. If you don't have the ego to say, well, tap, you got me. You're going to, you're going to get hurt. So and the same thing with this therapy, you have a problem. If you don't tap to the ther- tap to the problem, say, wow, this is bigger than me. I have to stop and either learn the move. And with this is going to a therapist and figuring a better way to handle this. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. You got to tap out. You got to say, listen, you got me tap. I need help. Wow. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. That is uh, that is wow. It's such, such a remarkable story. Be respectful of your time. Let's get to your book. You wrote a book, Thriving in the Storm. I got the Kindle version on Amazon. It is excellent. If you won't mind going over some things that you wrote in the book. Sure. You have talked about being verbally and physically knocked down. We covered that. You cover mindset. And you basically said with bad stuff coming at you, let's just say like adversity, you could have three types of mindset. You could be the victim and go, woe is me. You could just survive it and say, wow, this crushed me, but I'm still here. Or you can thrive. You could take it and use it as like a stepping stone, the obstacle, the stepping stone to become more. Can you speak of that mindset? Yeah. So I didn't realize that it was going to play out this way. I was actually writing the book that I started writing the book on. I'm a, I journal, I journal, and it's all my notes of journaling. And it was about always made feel less than, and you're capable of way more. And that's how this was going to start. But then I realized that I've always found a way to, when adversity strikes, to, to be able to just come out way more on top than I would have because it's a, it was motivational for me when the adversity struck. The thriving mentality was when you're smacked with adversity and you're able to succeed beyond what you even thought could happen when we're okay let's use covid right now a lot of people like do you know what was it covid 15 was the big joke like everybody would eat drink and that was the (laughs) thing right the covid 15 if you gained 15 pounds i was writing the book during covid and there was so many days when just was bad and things were just things weren't great my my kids were having their own mental health stuff with they they weren't in school they were oh, seeing their friends. Like, it was really just bad. like everybody, right? We weren't around our work, coworkers, weren't around anybody, right? So it's easy to not put your feet on the floor when you wake up in the morning, when things aren't going well. It's easy to hit that snooze when things aren't going well. You have to get up in spite of it. And so that's the victim if you hit snooze when you're upset. When you put your feet on the floor, you might just be surviving. You may hit snooze once or twice, and you're just like, I'm just going to get through the day. I'm surviving. Isn't it? Like, I'm surviving. What's that mean? You're just getting through? How about thrive, man? How about do something productive? That's where, when adversity would hit, I would seem to be able to succeed. Like, when, okay, I'll give you an example. When I had adversity, right? So I was running the Boston Marathon. This was in 2019. This is in the book. So I was running a Boston Marathon. I've done five Boston Marathons, right? So I'm like, I've trained, but I went through the motions train. I didn't, I just did enough. But what I really, where I really didn't pay attention, this is key, is the nutrition. So when you're doing those long hours and it, there's a term called bonking, like, or crashing. So you run out of energy and fuel and you're not doing anything. 
when I was doing my marathon, like I didn't prepare my food right. I didn't prepare my nutrition. I was just like, you know what? I'll stop at the aid station. I'll do this. And I got behind it. I didn't have enough salt. I didn't have enough electrolytes. I knew what I did. It was a New England crazy weather day in April. It was 70 degrees. It was 40 degrees. It was rainy. It was hot. The sun was out. And then it was the marathon finished with sideways rain and wind. It just was just a nutty day. And so that played a lot of tricks. Mile 15, I'm cruising, PRing it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a record here, a personal best. And my legs give out. It was cramping. I'm cramping. I'm cramping through mile 15 all the way to the end, to 26. And I was so pissed at myself because I said, you know what? I took this for granted. And now I have to stumble through this. I have to get through this to just to, I almost wanted to quit. Like I, I almost wanted to quit. So I was like, I just got to get through it and I'm going to walk. So during that time, I said, mental toughness. I said, I'm going to mentally grind through this uh, some way, somehow. But I shorted myself by not being prepared with my nutrition because I took it for granted. I decided right then and there that I would do an Ironman. So this was April of 2019. I said, because that's going to take me to a whole nother mental toughness level. So let's see what, I, let's see what I'm made of. So I start finish the marathon, and I, then I that night I remember I was googling how long it takes to train for an Ironman. Now I wasn't swimming; I haven't swam in thirty years. I didn't have a bike, and I just had the marathon, right? So I could run. And so now I start looking up coaches. They're like two year plan, one year plan at best if you're swimming and you're biking. So I had a friend who said, "Hey, I just got certified. I can coach you in the Ironman." I was like, "Okay," because everyone else said no, and so she took me on. So I trained for the Ironman in six months. But everybody, the nicest people, so I won't even say it's adversity. The nicest people that I would talk to would be like, no, man, that's not enough time. I don't think you could do that. You're going to get hurt. You're going to injure yourself. You're going to watch it. And so some funny stories were the first time I got in the pool, I kid you not, Joe, I got out after two laps. I had major anxiety, so I can't do this. And then I said, you know what? I told my kids I was going to do this, so I would keep swimming. I would just have major anxiety in that pool. And then... When I got my bike and I was getting fitted for the bike, they're like, you've ridden road bikes before, tri bikes before. I fit, I got fitted for the bike. I'm in the parking lot and I couldn't unclip my feet and fell over. And that was my experience on starting. So I was like, I'm going to end the flat tires and throw the, the, the tires in the woods and stuff because I was so sick of getting flat tires all the time. But like that was six months of training. I did it. I finished. I did the Ironman in six months because I finished. I did it in November of that year. And two weeks later... That was the year, 2019, that was the year when two weeks later, I checked myself into PCS. I knew I was going to PCS during the Ironman because I had so much angst and depression and things going on that I realized I was finally depressed. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do some crazy hard stuff to get through this, to keep my mind off my depression. So that's a thriving mentality. Now, here's the key here. When you're down, and you're depressed. What are your feelings? You're feeling sad. You're feeling angry, hostile. You have these low levels of feelings inside where it's really hard to do anything. You know what? I'm just, I'm so depressed right now. I'm so down. I can't get out of bed. And it's really hard to thrive, right? So that's the victim mentality. So what you have to do is get yourself out of those emotional, emotional place that's keeping you low, keeping you down. So now you have to start to create. Now, how do you create? We have to create from a good place. So your good place is going to be love, joy, happiness, success, a feeling of accomplishment, 
right? Enthusiasm, enthusiasm for life. I'm just going to, I'm going to do this thing great called life today. And, but the way you have to do that is you have to get to that level to thrive in order to get out of those low levels of feelings. The best way, and this is why you on a daily basis is that my knees hit the floor and I'm pretty spiritual and I do my prayer and then I give thanks for all my blessings. My blessings are my kids. My blessings are my kids' health, my family, my career, my wonderful career, my wonderful things that I have going on for the day and my clients and my employees and everything. I just give thanks. That changes your mindset and changes you physiologically and puts you in a great state to go create and thrive. And that's how you do it. So when you're down, if you practice that, now there's all kinds of things that go into that. It's part of the morning routine. Like you talk about your, you guys get together on the mats before sunrise. Like, that is awesome, man. I have to work out in the morning. Like I get my workouts in the morning. I do morning prof classes. My martial arts is prof. I do the morning. I'll work out and then I'll do my prof classes in the morning. Like I don't go to night classes, mm-hmm. but that's my biorhythm. People that have to do it at night, that's fine. So that's the book ending of the day. Like my morning routine is so important. Because it builds up the fortress for the rest of the day when stuff comes at you. When shit hits the fan and things are going wrong, you have a mindset that can handle it. Okay, you know what? This house didn't appraise. These clients are walking because they don't like the interest rates. There's a title issue over here. Whatever can go wrong in sales. And you're able to get through that in a way where you can problem solve. And not only just get through it, that's the surviving part. But you can get through it and problem solve a solution where you save it. You yeah. save the day. You save the deal. You save whatever issues are coming at you. And so that's the thriving mentality. First off, a couple of things to unpack there. One, you mentioned about just getting up and doing something positive for yourself, like setting the tone for the day early on. It could be martial arts. It could be go walk. It could be journaling. It, it could be reading something out of a positive book for a couple of minutes. But you mentioned gratitude. Let's go there. Yeah. Gratitude. It's so powerful. Even Gary, are you familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk? Gary V. Yeah. yeah. And Tony Robbins. And they, there was a great interview with them online at YouTube. I saw about a year ago, maybe during the pandemic. And Gary V, so successful, but he's a nut, right? He yeah. starts every day. He told Tony Robbins, like he wakes up and he loves his family and his wife. And he's married. He basically wakes up. And for three seconds, he puts in his head, his kids just died, his wife's dead, his house burned down, like something like that. Like just the, the most horrendous thing you could think of. And he like, like he just feels it that it happened for three, four seconds. His kids are dead, his wife's dead. And then he stops, he goes, wait, they're all alive and they're great and they're fine and they're healthy. And he's in such a great mood, let's go. Like, like he has to think of the really bad stuff. And then he like, like tricks himself to, oh my gosh, everyone's still here, let's go. It's the greatest day ever. And yeah. uh, like he, like, and that how he drums up gratitude, and he brings that gratitude out into the rest of the day for his you know, when he moves ninety miles an hour. But yeah. crazy, but you can see how gratitude is so powerful. It's, it, it really it's is crazy. How about too? You also mentioned about how you have to build that fortress. There's a great book by Pierre Hadot called The Inner Citadel, and it's just like you have to build that fortress up in the morning where you just if you just wake up and you check your email and you watch the news and you see what wars going on and who got beat up in a parking lot in Boston and what burned what warehouse burned down and who got robbed 
and which drug dealer got arrested and where the shootout was in town, you get in that spiral. Like you don't have that citadel. You don't have that mindset, that fortress build up where you're like, it's not there. No, you can't start it with news and junk and other people's drama. Now, I'm not talking your family's drama. I'm talking about like things seven time zones away that exploded. It's a tragedy, but it has nothing to do with your life. Like zero, you can't influence it at all. There's nothing you can do about it. And you start your day that way. It's you're not going to bring your best self to the stuff that you can control, like the stuff that you can touch, feel, move and influence. Absolutely. And I'm still I don't have it figured out, but it's it's just I'm moving a little bit more in that direction of I used to be like three newspapers a day. I used mm-hmm. to watch Meet the Press. I used to watch the news. Everyone scream at each other on CNN. And I thought I was like being informed and like all this there's a bunch of shit I can't control. And then I just shut it off. Right. They're distractions. What can you control? Who can you influence? What positive things can you do in the world and start there? And I'm still working on that. It's still a work in progress, yeah. but it's just, it gives you so much more time in your day. So it's like you talked about it, like news junkies, right? So if a news junkie, hey, the presidential campaign is running this month and you watch it over and over again, you're glued to the TV or you're glued to watch this news and read the news and you watch it for five, six hours every single day. And that's what you just, that's your fuel. That's your junk food, right? That's your alcohol and that's Mm -hmm. your drugs and that's everything else. Cause you don't need it. Guess what? You could watch it for a month and I could be just as informed almost as you by Googling what you just watched for a month. And how many hours did you spend wasting your time? This is anything like Mm -hmm. Shame on me because I was, I'm a huge, we're in Titletown, Joe, up in Boston. Sports wise, I'm a huge, and I'm kidding. I know you're a passionate sports fan. And I, and you got the best of us with your Eagles a few years back. But I would just, just live off of sports radio. And I'm like, what am I doing? Do I really care about this quarterback controversy or do I care about who's got a bum leg right now? I can just get, I can spend five minutes and go on ESPN, Boston. And I have all my information. Why am I going to spend four or five hours listening to that stuff when I can just get the same information? I have to be listening to a podcast like yours, like your stuff, your people that you have on. I have to be listening to an audible book. So you got, you got to create those habits that, hey, listen, but here's the thing. Did I watch football yesterday? You know what? Because I worked my butt off all week. I worked out. I did all the right things. And I, you know what I said? I'm going to sit back and I'm going to watch and watch the games at one, one o'clock in some of the And so that was my reward. It's okay to reward yourself. If you want to watch a movie, if you want to binge watch something in a weekend, because you say, you know what? I've been working so hard. I just need to decompress and reward myself. That's okay. But when you do it, when that's your routine day after day of that stuff that you're putting in your mind and your body, that's not going to help you. Agreed. I'm with you too. Probably the only thing that I cannot control that I'm all in is two things. It's our football team, the Eagles here in Philly. And baseball team, the Phillies. And so it's like the Eagles and Phillies are the two things where, and if you said, it's like that distraction where I don't do it alone in a silo. Like I watch it with my kids, my wife, we get into it. It's like a community thing. We get together. It's fun to watch. It's strategy. Like I, but like after that three hours, I'm out. I don't do the 27 hours of what I did 20 years ago of like sports radio all week long. Like not at all. Zero, like zero sports radio. It's just going to watch the games and I'm out. And it's, and it's like a bonding community thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. A, cu- a couple of things. Be respectful of your time, man. I could talk to you all day. Some f- fascinating perspectives on life. You mentioned you ran the Boston Mar- Marathon multiple times. 
There was one time you ran it on crutches. Can you briefly tell us about that? How do you run the Boston Marathon on crutches? <sighs> Very carefully. So I was training for the Boston Marathon. It was a, this is just silly me. It was probably 4.30, 4.45 in the morning. I'm walking down my stairs and it's dark out. I'm walking down the stairs and I missed the two bottom steps and I blow my quad, detach it from the bone. I actually thought I broke my leg because when I touched it, it was the most pain that I've ever I would not wish on anybody, but it was like, it was, I thought the bone was sticking out. It was actually the tendon was at the top of the thigh. It was squishy. I was in excruciating pain. And so I blew it out. They want to give me surgery right there. I came straight in the leg and they said, you're going to have surgery tomorrow. So I had surgery and I said, doc, can I limp, can I limp the marathon? Can I do this? I said, it's 60 days from today. You just performed the surgery on me. You pulled my quad back into my knee. They had to reattach it. And he's like, you're not doing any marathon, man. This could be a two-year recovery. I'm like, oh, no. And then so that next morning, the, I was running for Make-A-Wish. So that next morning, I remember one of my coaches, she's like, oh, my God, I heard about your devastating injury. Sorry, I know you were training for the marathon and Make-A-Wish and all this stuff. And I was like, no, I'm doing the marathon. I'm going to figure this out. And then Make-A-Wish says, they sent me an email They said, Hey, sorry, we'll try to get you into an entry for next year that you can't participate in the marathon. And I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the marathon. And so now we're brainstorming. Now Boston doesn't allow people on crutches to do it after the bombing and everything is liability and all this other stuff. They just don't want. It. Just, they're very strict, and that's fine. So I can't do the marathon in Boston. And so they were still doing virtual, is still okay. It was uh, last year, last October. It was actually a year from this month, last year. And so. I talked to Make-A-Wish and I said, let's figure this out. And they said, okay, we'll get a venue. Now this is where giving back comes in. So there, there, not a lot of people are saying, why do you want to do it? You have nothing to prove. You can go raise money and all sorts of stuff. If, if I'm in pain and this is going to really suck this marathon of crutches, but these kids with these life-threatening critical illnesses don't have a choice. My choice is I'm going to do this. Because I said I was going to do it and I'm going to figure it out. So I was so slow on crutches, Joe. I started crutching around my pool. Now, but my, my dog, my, my golden, she's my running partner, right? So she was excited. To, I started crutching around my pool. My pace after the first half hour was going to take me 13 hours to do this marathon. So Make Wish helps me out. They get with my old college where I graduated and I do a scholarship for. They gave me the football field. They gave me the they gave me the uh, the track, so we're gonna so we set it up. We set up the Boston Marathon virtually at the track. Um, I start training, and it was just it was hell. It was the worst way to train. The chafing under Awful. the arms, the bleeding. I was you, I, I, everything that you can imagine, just going around and around on crutches. But I, I got I got these like really cool crutches that were less. They were more like these sport mobile crutches, and I got a less. The brace was better, and so I started picking up time. But so some great things started happening is news coverage was all over it and the donations. So I just, I committed to raising, I think 10 grand, right? I probably quadrupled that in donations because of all the attention doing the crutches for Make-A-Wish got for the marathon. So that was the silver line. And I ended up doing it like six hours and six hours and 20 minutes, which was a pretty good time if you Google it. And it was quite the experience. and. The why was, I'm doing this for these kids. And here's a great story that came out of that. Some Make-A-Wish kids came and this local girl who had some pancreatitis, if I'm saying it, she had some 
pancreas issues and she was make wish kid, but she's thriving. She's healthy now. She comes and joins me for the last three miles. Now my crutch time was pretty steady, but so she's talking to me and pumping me up. She's like, I can't believe you're doing this. It's so awesome. This is great. And I can't wait to tell my friends that I did this with you. And I, so she's going on and on. She's a ball of just bright light and energy. Right. And my last three miles of my marathon on crutches were faster than any of the previous miles that I did because I had her with me. Wow. That is awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. Just sharing that, man. That's impressive, man. Thanks for doing that. You raised, I think I saw doing some research, you raised over $500,000 for Make-A-Wish overall. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it started in 2006. We do it as part of our sales. Uh -huh. So you're, you have your sales vibe and you have your sales team. Anybody that's in sales should be giving, but like I make it part of our pro every single loan I close part of our proceeds goes to make wish. I've been doing that since 2006. And the reason there's two reasons. One was we talked about my dad earlier, the cheapest, selfish, very selfish in, in, in giving, right? He just doesn't give, he doesn't believe in that. He thinks if I give you a dollar, I'm less a dollar, but it's, a, it's not the impact you make on people when you give that dollar. Yeah. And by the way, that will come back to you tenfold. So keep giving, yeah. right? Tithing. I, I totally believe in tithing, right? So I started doing the make a wish thing as I was gaining success in my business. And I was like, I need to give back. And this is a great charity. And there's, there's other stories that go why I did that, but this is a great charity. So I'm going to do this for every single family. I'm going to do this as every family we do it, uh, do a loan transaction with. I'm going to give to make wish. I've had a career year every year since in some capacity, whether it was income, whether it was closing more business or volume or, but the feeling of giving to these charities and what that does and how you can make an impact, that's part of legacy building. So you can have all the success in the world. You talk about it. You have all the success in the world and you can have a crappy home life. But if you have all success in the world and you have a good home life, but now it's time to, that's good, right? But now it's time to do that legacy thing, right? Make an impact on others. And my whole legacy building right now is for my kids so I can set a good example. Because I misstepped as a dad. I've, they've seen some bad things. They've seen, some, they've seen me at not my best. And I want to make sure that they know what a difference they can make in this world if they give back. That example is amazing. I appreciate you sharing all that. Three questions to wrap up here. Yeah. If you could have everyone listening take one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? Make peace with your past and forgive yourself for anything that you're holding on to. Making peace with your past. That is great. How about here's a fun one. Here's a fun question. If you could spend the day with any historical figure, any figure, anyone, alive or dead, famous, not famous, who would it be? I know you asked this question, Joe. So I actually thought long and hard. And <laughs> the first answer was Babe Ruth, because I just, the guy was a party animal, but yet he was just such a purist in baseball terms as far as what he did on the field, pitching and hitting. But now I know it was a fun question, but I'm going to take this seriously. Yeah. It's really Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Now, he was in a concentration camp for three years. He lost his wife, his siblings. One of his siblings lived and his parents in the concentration camp. And he would have to create games. They would have to gamify their days not to commit suicide, get to the next thing. And so 
I think that was, you want to talk about mental toughness? That's going to be the most, one of the most mentally tough dudes or dudettes, women that, men or women that you could ever talk to. And I would just want to understand, wow, why, why, what was your why? Yeah. No, Victor Frankl, you're the first one in like 70 episodes to bring Victor Frankl up. His book, Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. is such a game changer is underselling it. I think he's the first one I ever read that said there's a stimulus, right? And there's a space between that stimulus and response. And that space that you decide to react, don't react, yeah. how you do, go crazy, become, that space basically creates the direction for the rest of your life. Yeah. Something happens, you give it meaning. You give meaning what it means, and then you can freak out, you can cry, you can laugh, you can punch the wall, throw someone through the wall, go for a run, go to jujitsu, read a book, go make dinner for your family, whatever you decide to do with that outside stimulus. And that basically creates the direction of your life. Yeah. And that's a great one. Thank you for sharing that. But last question. This has been such a fascinating interview, Bill. I really appreciate you. Bill Murphy, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body what would that quote or motto say i love this question i've heard it in a lot of your interviews so you got me thinking on that one too so a fun favorite so i'll go fun right fun favorite is mike tyson's quote everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face Right. But it's so true. Even like you're sparring or whatever, you mess around or, or you're just going through your plan and you just get railroaded physically or you're in your work or whatever. And you got to you just got whacked upside the head. You got to figure it out. So get back on track. It's not a straight line to success. You're going to zig. You're going to zag. You're going to fall down. You got to get back up and figure it out. Figure it out. But one that really drives drives me that I think about all the time is and I don't know who the author of it is. It's darkest just before dawn. Wow. It's dark. Because if you can break, yeah, darkest just before dawn. If you can break through to that sunrise, it's just going to get better. But you got you to deal with it. That is a mic drop quote. If I ever heard it, it's darkest just before dawn. Wow. I think that is about as good as a spot to wrap up as any. Bill Murphy. I'd like to thank you for joining us. An amazing story, amazing perspective. Thank you for having the courage to tell it. Thank you for having the courage to go get some therapy and an amazing life you have created, man. Your life could have went so many different ways from your early on. And uh, wow, man, it's just so impressive what you've done. Wish you nothing but success in your business with your family. Before we leave, just out of curiosity, what's your relationship with your father now? What is that like? We still we casually talk here and there and uh, it's awkward he, I, you, know, you know what i said to him and you play this or not what i said to him was when he when i confronted him after i came out of pcs i said dad why did you do that do those things to us or to me and kelly to a lesser degree but why did you do those things and he said you were a difficult kid that was just three years ago and then i said you know what i don't care i don't care if you're not sorry if you're not if you don't if you don't think you were terrible but i do want you to be a good grandfather to my kids and they, he texts them on their birthdays he texts them on christmas but he comes around once in a while so they it's awkward but tolerable and i just feel bad for him i wanted so i tried for so long for him to understand legacy and to try to lead one and i said your tombstone 
is just going to have your name and the years you lived. It's not going to say anything else. And that was, that was it. But just, he didn't get it. And I was like, you're never going to get it. And I can't worry about your legacy. Wow. That, that, that's some powerful stuff. I think we'll leave it right there. Yeah. Uh, Bill, if there, if anyone's looking for you, your mortgage business online, your book, where can we find you? Yeah. So I do work for Fairway Mortgage in Massachusetts and the book is thrivinginthestorm.com and you can get it on Amazon right now. I got the Kindle edition. It is very good, man. There's a lot of wisdom in there and I appreciate you share, having the courage to share your story. I will put all these in the show notes, but hey, Bill, I wish you nothing but success and thank you for joining us. I love your show, man. I'm hooked on your show, dude. I'd probably listen to during my runs and workouts over the weekend, I listened to probably seven or eight shows. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.